This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. Hamas wants to kill as many Israelis as possible and has no regard whatsoever to Palestinian lives. There are growing fears that the conflict in the Middle East could spiral well beyond the borders of Israel and the Palestinian territories, with thousands dead in the two weeks since war was declared. They tell us that they cannot even reassure their children to tell them that it's going to be okay because maybe it's not going to be okay. In Gaza, the situation is getting more desperate as supplies of food, water and medicine start to run out. And this week, each side blamed the other for an horrific blast at a hospital there that reportedly killed hundreds. Healthcare is not a target. It should never be a target. US President Joe Biden travelled to the region this week, insisting Israel was not to blame for the hospital bombing and pledging solidarity with the Jewish state. Americans are grieving with you. They really are. And Americans are worried. Americans are worried because we know there's a, this is not an easy field to navigate what you have to do. It's grim. They've had 6,000 at least Israeli bombs, that's Israel's figure, um, dropped on them since this new war began. And you can imagine the 6,000 bombs in a small area, half the size of Canberra. And you can imagine the sort of physical, psychological effects of that. John Lyons is the ABC's global affairs correspondent. Gaza at the best of times is a grim place. It's the only place I've been to. I've travelled to a lot of bad places. The only place where this generation of children is smaller than the previous generation. I've never seen that before. And that was the first time I went in there. That struck me, just seeing how small the children are. And I started to ask doctors, you know, what was the, the issue? And they all said, look, it's just malnutrition over many, many years and several wars with Israel, of course, and the consequences of that. The hospitals are in crisis. They're doing operations now without anaesthetics and painkillers. It's a very, very grim place. There's some 50,000 or so pregnant women. And of course, they don't know where to go. There's 5,000 women due this month. And a lot of hospitals and and medical facilities are not operating. Mm. So it's extremely dire. You are reporting this conflict currently from Ashdod in in southern Israel. What is the sentiment amongst people there about this war and, and about the humanitarian catastrophe you've just described? Well, David, it's important. And just as we've looked at what's happening in Gaza to look at what happened in Israel uh, on October 7. Um, And no, there's no waning of determination by Israelis. Um, They are absolutely devastated and angry about Hamas coming into southern Israel and for many hours wreaking havoc, committing absolute atrocities. Um, We've seen many of those stories. Now, the determination 
here in Israel is that once and for all, we must finish off Hamas. We must destroy it. We must kill its leaders. We must destroy its infrastructure. The devastation in Israel, given that there's, you know, so many people were killed, um, there's still, you know, 200 or so hostages in, in Israel and how many young Israelis are going to the army. There's barely a family in Israel that hasn't been touched somehow by this. So the country is united in its determination to try to do something. That doesn't mean that they're not, some Israelis are not very mindful of those humanitarian issues, but there's a burning desire to once and for all destroy Hamas. Now, this week, the blast at the Al-Ali hospital could prove to be a pivotal moment in the early stages of this war. Israel was blamed initially, but it has presented evidence suggesting it was in fact a misfired rocket shot by Palestinian militants, and the US has backed that version, as have a a number of independent experts. But what do you make of, of this tragedy this week and the impact it's having on the broader conflict? I think that that has ignited the the Arab world in a way that no other thing has in this war. However, I think there is serious doubt. I mean, both sides are claiming the others did it. The Israelis have presented what looks on on the face of it, um, compelling evidence that it wasn't one of its rockets. I think in a way, until there's an examination, we'll never know. The best way we would have known would have been if the two sides had agreed to allow a forensic team in there, if Israel had said we'll pause our bombing for 48 hours to allow, and if Hamas had agreed, of course, to allow a forensic team to go in there to examine the remnants of the missile or whatever the object was. That's the only conclusive way. But in this fog of war, that's not going to happen. We won't know that. The interesting thing is that the Arab, so many in the Arab world and in the media too, immediately jumped to the conclusion that it must have been Israel. That's partly because of those 6,000 bombs we talked about. And of course, people thought, well, if they've dropped 6,000, then this must be 6,001 or whatever. So the Palestinian Authority leader cancelled his meeting with uh, the President of the United States. Jordan accused Israel of a war crime. We've seen riots and protests now around the Arab and Muslim world. So in a way, Israel was going to be blamed anyway, and it's it's sort of almost symbolic or representative of the general war, whether Israel did it or not. Mm. Now, Israel is fighting Hamas, obviously, in the south. There are also clashes with the Lebanese militia Hezbollah in the north and fears now around the other Palestinian territory, the West Bank, that it could turn into a third front in this war. How likely do you think that is? I think, David, the third front is is happening now. Mm. Um, I think there's been a huge number of of people killed uh, in the West Bank already um, in the last sort of two weeks. Um, Of course, that includes East Jerusalem, where there are sort of violent uh, uprisings and breakouts there now, serious clashes. But then you have have all sorts of other elements. It looks like the Houthi rebels have tried to fire or send a couple of drones towards Israel, which the US Navy has shot down. Um, As you say, Hezbollah is the real one to watch. In terms of military fighting units, Hezbollah dwarfs Hamas. 
the Israelis. Generally, a war with Hamas is not difficult militarily for Israel, um, but a, a war with Hezbollah is a very different matter. Hezbollah is one of the toughest most formidable fighting machines in the world. They have 100,000 or so missiles hidden across southern Lebanon. They are battle-hardened and trained from Syria, where they help to prop up Bashar al-Assad. They have a lot of weapons. They're trained by Iran. They're funded and supplied by Iran, even though Hamas is to some extent too. It's so much more difficult that, uh, to get the weapons into Gaza than it is to Lebanon. So what could happen? I think what we need to watch is, is what Hezbollah does. It will be at Iran's instigation, whether or not they join this conflict full time. As you say, there's been skirmishes, but um, if Hezbollah joins this war, I have no doubt that Israel will respond directly at the party it believes responsible. That's Tehran. That's what America doesn't want. They don't want a war between Israel, which they will be drawn into on Israel's side, versus Iran. Well, what then do you make of the trip to Israel by the US President Joe Biden and the fact that his planned meeting with Arab leaders had to be cancelled? When I travel around the Middle East now, I see that America is not regarded as an objective or an honest broker. In fact, I think leaders, say, from France, like President Macron, would be much more regarded in the Middle East as being able to talk to all sides than the President of the United States. Now, the fact that the President of the US could not get to a table, a negotiating table, the leaders of Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority is extraordinary, given that all three of them have relationships with the US and with Israel. So that says something about the status of America at the moment here, and it says something about how America's seen, which is actually in a way a dangerous thing, because it, it means that the United States is no longer any sort of broker in the Middle East. And it, it's a time like this where the Middle East is so precariously based that we need to have good, honest interlocutors. John Lyons there. He's the ABC's global affairs correspondent. Now, the blast at the Al-Ali hospital this week sparked outrage across the Middle East, with sometimes violent protests breaking out in Arab countries and much further afield. With the temperature rising throughout the Middle East, what is the risk that this war will fuel unrest across the Arab world. I think this is probably the most serious crisis that we have seen in the Middle East in in decades at least. Not in terms of the human toll, we've seen more in Syria, elsewhere, but in terms of the potential for spillover. Gaith Alamari is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. He's previously held positions within the Palestinian Authority and was an advisor to its negotiating team. Already we're seeing destabilization all over the region and uh, there's re- great concern that this might even get more destabilizing. If you look at instability, there are two uh, elements. We talk about the potential Iranian attack, but in every major Arab capital I can think of, there have been major uh, demonstrations. We will see demonstrations, demonstrations that might turn against the leaders of those countries. Every Arab country I know is on full security alert. Mm. And how has this week's horrific hospital blast, which was initially blamed on Israel, inflamed those, those regional dynamics? 
It inflamed them uh, greatly. You know, the initial reporting, as you said, was that Israel uh, did it. This is the story that stuck with the Arab audiences and continues to stick. I was looking at images from the Jordanian capital, Amman, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, demonstrating in front of the Israeli uh, embassy. Things got so bad that the Jordanian king had to cancel a summit he was hosting uh, with President Biden. In Egypt, we are seeing demonstrations. It's so bad that the government is actually calling for demonstrations, hoping to ride the wave of public anger. Some of the Israel's regional allies, like the United Arab Emirates, immediately went to condemn uh, Israel because they were concerned that if they're not ahead of their publics, they might be uh, facing uh, instability. This is gives you a flavor of the kind of challenges some of these governments are dealing with. Is this part of the reason that so many Arab nations came out so early and so hard condemning Israel? over that hospital attack before there was there was any real evidence of who was to blame most certainly i think arab leaders who have a very good sense of their public opinions read the public mood realized that there is no shifting this public anger so they chose to basically ride this uh, wave rather than confronting it to me what was very interesting for example the saudi uh, uh, crown prince who's the de facto leader of saudi arabia even after president biden said it was a but Israel continued to insist and issued a statement saying, no, it was Israel, because he read how his public uh, is feeling. We often look at dictatorships and most Arab countries are dictatorships as countries that don't care about their public opinions. They do. Uh, they do because they know if it crosses a certain threshold, it will threaten them, as we saw in the so-called Arab Spring to, you know, after 2011 and the few years uh, following that. So they are all very worried. So, so what the truth potentially plays second fiddle to considerations of their own regime survival, if you like. Um, absolutely. At the end of the day, politics is about managing public opinion. And uh, things are not made easier by the fact that you have some Arab media platforms that intentionally push these kinds of narrative. I look, for example, at uh, the Qatari-funded, Qatari-controlled Al Jazeera channel, one of the most watched in the Arab world, that is pushing this kind of disinformation uh, with the intention of inflaming some of these uh, public uh, views. So there's not really, for many uh, viewers in the Arab world, there isn't even the ability to access uh, this uh, the truth unless you go and look for it uh, on social media and elsewhere. And most people don't do that. We did see, as you mentioned, the hospital blast leading Arab leaders to pull out of planned talks with the US President Joe Biden. How damaging was that for the, for the US President and his attempts to tamp down tensions in the region? I don't think it was damaging. I mean, I was quite impressed with the way that uh, the president handled it. They issued a statement basically that acknowledged that these Arab countries are in mourning, acknowledging that this is not time uh, to talk and said we'll be talking uh, later. But it was an indication and a reminder that the Palestinian issue you can ignore it, but it will not ignore you and will drag you back in. Over the last, you know, since the Biden administration really took power, they've decided to put this in the back burner. And this was a reminder that uh, things in the Palestinian-Israeli arena could have spilled over, as we saw with the cancellation of, of the summit. Mm. There is a lot of thought already going into the day after this conflict, the, the setup, if you like, in Gaza after Israel's attempt to, to wipe out Hamas, or it, it wouldn't see it as an attempt. But, but what do you think Gaza needs to look like after this conflict? First of all, it is uh, too early to tell because, uh, you know, with wars, as they say, the you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. We don't know how it's going to work out. Ideally, though, I would like to see 
Hamas dislodged from Gaza because Hamas has not only been bad uh, to Israelis, Hamas has been bad to Palestinians uh, domestically. Um, in, in a perfect world, the Palestinian Authority, the legitimate authority recognized by the world, should come and take over. However, the Palestinian Authority is so unpopular, so corrupt, that the people in Gaza will not accept it. So what I would like to see is some sort of an international trusteeship over Gaza, but also very strong efforts to uh, reform the Palestinian Authority, to uh, rehabilitate it, to make it an appealing option for the Palestinians who are looking for a better future, to create a Palestinian Authority that is capable to do the massive reconstruction that we will uh, need in a way that is not corrupted, that not siphon uh, off uh, uh, funds. But unfortunately, in the short term, I see nothing, uh, no alternative to an international presence, at least as a, as a transitional period. And what should the makeup of that international presence be? I mean, first of all, it should uh, have the largest international umbrella possible, meaning the UN. However, there is a risk there because uh, countries like China, countries like uh, Russia might play uh, politics with it. It has the, then we might go for a coalition of the willing. It has to have a Western component because we need that uh, for credibility, but it also has to have a very strong Arab component. And the challenge here is to make sure that the Arab countries that get involved are countries that are not supporters of Hamas, make sure that countries like Qatar and Turkey do not come in and rather bring countries which we see as partners, Egypt, Jordan, the Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, to be part of this. Of course, before any of that can happen, there is, we expect, going to be a, a lot more bloodshed. What are your thoughts? What are your fears for, for the weeks possibly months or longer ahead? Thank you for asking this question, because indeed we have been talking about almost abstract policy issues and what we're seeing is something that real people are paying the price for in their lives. You know, 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, were killed. Now uh, around 4,000 Palestinians, mostly civilians, uh, are killed. And I am sad to say that it will be much, much worse before uh, it ends. Um, disarming and decapitating a group like Hamas and urban uh, warf warfare in one of the most densely populated areas uh, on earth will be ugly, um, no matter. And, you know, what Hamas did uh, on October 7th is condemnable both on kind of moral, political, on every way that you can uh, look at it. But this does not absolve Israel of uh, uh, respecting the rules of law to minimizing uh, civilian casualties and does not absolve the international community of ensuring that sufficient aid and sufficient protection is going to be sent to the Palestinian public. Yet even if we do the best that we can do, I am, I am sad to say that many, many lives will be lost. Gaith Alamari there, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Now, with all that's been unfolding in the Middle East, you'd be forgiven for missing the fact that New Zealand has a new Prime Minister in waiting. His name is Christopher Luxon. Thank you, New Zealand, because from all over your country, this great country, you have reached for hope and you have voted for change. The final makeup of Parliament is yet to be determined as final votes are counted and political negotiations continue. But there's no doubt the election marks a major shift for New Zealand, an emphatic rejection of the Ardern era of progressive feel-good politics making way for a back-to-basics focus on the economy and crime prevention 
So who is the new New Zealand Prime Minister and why is everyone asking him if he believes in dinosaurs? Do you believe dinosaurs are real? Yeah. Do you believe dinosaurs roam the earth? Sorry? Do you believe dinosaurs roam the earth? Absolutely. <laughs> what kind of question is that, mate? Kiwi comedian Guy Williams there. We'll get to the bottom of that shortly. But first, to the dramatic turnaround in fortunes for New Zealand Labor. It was a pretty monumental defeat for Labor. Their vote share halved basically from 50% to 27 to 28%, somewhere around there. And more a defeat for Labor than for the left because the Greens did quite well. So they've, they've really paid the price of the last three years in this regard. Claire Trevette is the political editor at the New Zealand Herald. The 2020 result was, was very much the result of COVID-19 and the management during the early year of COVID-19. After that point, things got a lot more stressed. They, they lost basically Auckland, the biggest city, during the tail end of COVID when that city was in lockdown for extended periods of time, the rest of the country not so much. And then they had the post-COVID hangovers of the cost of living crisis, a spike in crime, especially around Auckland, and they, they just didn't really have an answer to it. Jacinda Ardern had stood down at the start of this year. I don't honestly think it would have made much difference if she had stayed because there was very strong mood for change against Labor, really. So the, the very same policies, the hardline approach to managing COVID-19 that saw that huge victory in 2020 also, it seems, led to this whopping defeat a few years later. It certainly set the mood for it. It wasn't only the COVID management, but I think that people were so sick of the government by then that it was very hard for them to sell any new ideas and try and reset. They couldn't get the centre back and they lost the left in the attempts to get the centre back because they pivoted too far to the centre under Chris Hipkins and couldn't bring it home. So all their lefty voters went over to the Greens and the centre went to national. And all of this seemed to play pretty well into the victory for Christopher Luxon, the new Prime Minister in waiting. Just tell us a little bit about him, first of all. Yeah, he's um, a first-term MP, funnily enough, who's, who came into Parliament in 2020 when Nash, the National Party that he now leads was at its worst, like the worst result it had ever had since 2002, I think. He muscled them back into shape. They became a much more disciplined force and he drove it home. He didn't come in with a resounding um, win or anything. He didn't get the 40% thresholds that John Key used to get, but he did enough to bring it home with the help of the smaller parties, of course. So quite a feat for a first-term MP. He is the former CEO of Air New Zealand who knows the Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, fleetingly I would say from when he was the CEO of Air New Zealand and Albanese was the Minister for Transport and Infrastructure and I think they've already spoken on the blower, they'll be touching base pretty soon in person probably either at Pacific Islands Forum if Luxon can get over there in time or at APEC. So how do you think Christopher Luxon was able to use that business experience and, and his politics to, to capitalise on the mood in New Zealand? I think his business experience comes into play in the way he manages his caucus a lot, even in the way he intends to do negotiations. So when he was talking about how he would approach negotiations, he mentioned, <laughs> I have to admit we laugh at him a little bit for it, he mentioned that he... Um, 
had done a number of mergers and acquisitions in the past, so he had the experience in negotiating, <laughs> So, which is kind of funny when you think about New Zealand First Leader Winston Peters wondering whether he'll be merged or acquired. I don't think it would go down so well. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> running the government is not quite the same as running a business. Yeah, he's, it's taken a while. He hasn't quite yet earned the trust of the New Zealand public. He still has quite low preferred Prime Minister and trust ratings. He's kind of a, a self-made millionaire, I guess, if you like. He's worked in business all his life overseas and back here. He's come from a middle-class background, grew up in Auckland and Christchurch, married his childhood sweetheart. His faith has had a lot of attention because he's very Christian. He has anti-abortion views which have caused him some problems. Indeed, there were these moments during the final stages of the campaign, weren't they, about his core beliefs in particular, and I can't believe I'm asking this, whether he believes in dinosaurs. Explain that for us. Yeah, that one that one kind of came out of nowhere. There was um, a rumour that he didn't believe in dinosaurs and he had once stopped a Air New Zealand safety ad going ahead because it had dinosaurs in it and... Um, and he didn't believe in dinosaurs, so he said, no, that can't be our ad. He has denied that that ever happened, and we have done some digging around and have not been able to, you know, come up with any evidence that it actually happened. He insists he does believe in dinosaurs, so he's kind of tried to make a joke out of it by um, coming up with his tax relief asaurus and has <laughs> done what the only thing you can do in those situations, which is just try and laugh about it. So that's the, the very distant past, obviously. What, what about the future? What direction do you think he'll take New Zealand? Because uh, as you say, we're not talking about a, a major lurch to the hard right or anything like we've seen in Europe and elsewhere, are we? No, we don't really do that here because we're too small. So, you know, if you can't hold the centre, you can't hold the government. So he will take a different approach to how he goes about the economy. He has campaigned on a platform of tax cuts, which are relatively modest. He's more or less campaigned on, on fixing the economy and getting the books back into shape and on uh, law and order and the cost of living kind of issues around that. So he's he's gone with the points that people generally see as the um, more conservative national parties kind of strong points and that they come in and fix an economy rather than undertake massive reforms. Just in terms of the election results, something we're pretty familiar with here too, what seemed to be something of a rejection of, of the major parties and the rise, to an extent, of, of minor parties in New Zealand. How significant is that and, and how is it going to impact on New Zealand politics? It's almost like an overcorrection to the past. So we've been trying to grapple with that. We can't figure out whether it's because neither of the leaders of the two parties have particularly inspired people, like we've come off monumentally popular leaders in John Key and Jacinda Ardern, who would have had people voting for them purely out of their own popularity rather than necessarily politics. The small parties have also played it quite well, like ACT, the ACT Party, the right-wing party, has been very careful and very diligent to build his base during Nationals' um, years of woes and held on to a significant chunk of it. And people may have thought, well, we don't like the way this is going, so they've kind of reverted to voting for the small parties to bring back that kind of handbrake or check on power element of it. Claire Trevette there, the political editor at the New Zealand Herald. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Laura Corrigan, Madeline Jenner and me, David Lipson. Catch you next time.